This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com sustain. Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we sustain ourselves by eating lots of saltines. Wait, no, that's ridiculous. Talking about open source here today, as we do every day. We have five panelists today, which is new and a shock. We have me, Richard. Hello, everyone. We have Justin. Hi, how are you? Pia. Hello, folks. Eric. Oh, oh, Merry Christmas. Lay back in the smoking, Eric. And Gunner, who just dropped. Unfortunately, Gunner will be back to say hello later. We will look forward to that. We also have another person on the podcast today, so it's not just an echo chamber of open source goodness. Josh Simmons, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. A little sleepy, but, you know, I've got caffeine. I'm ready. That's good. You also have an amazing hat. I love the hat. Um, everyone here is wearing red hats today, but Josh is the only one with an actual Santa type thing on it, which is just beautiful, which is weird because I believe you live in Northern California where it's warm. Uh, yeah, I mean, warm is relative, right? Like it gets colder here than it does in San Francisco, but uh, I mean, it's a Californian Christmas. What can I say? Nice. So in California, I believe you work at Salesforce. What do you do there? Yeah, so I joined Salesforce early this year as a senior open source strategist. And my work there is to sort of build an open source programs office, which basically means make it easier for people to use open source in their work so they're more productive, uh, make it easier for people to contribute back to open source so that we're you know giving back the value that we're getting from the software. And then also making sure that we're, we're providing other forms of support for all the open source software communities that we basically rely on. That is amazing. So that's three separate strategies you have. Do you also donate to open source? Oh, you know Is that it. part of it? Yeah, Absolutely. that's so cool. Awesome. So how many developers are there at Salesforce? So I'm going to say that the department that I'm in, which is like the tech org, uh, is about 8,000 people. Wow. That is amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So you're in charge of making sure that they all use open source all the time, use an MIT license on everything, appropriately tag all their GitHub repos, right? All this stuff? That's 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 the goal. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. How big is the team that you work on? So right now I'm on a team of five people. We also presently do, if you see Salesforce at a conference, that's also my team. We found that our engineering, marketing, and branding team was a really useful place to plant the seeds of building an open source programs office because we've already got funding. We're already maintaining relationships with the open source community and our, fa- our sponsorships and foundation memberships. But we are all sort of focused on doing marketing through open source in the next couple of years here, which I'm really excited about because it's a way to, to connect with people that isn't selling them anything. It's like, hey, just yep. look at these things we made. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's basically the sum of it. So we're seeing a lot more of these sort of open source officers. 
most of the large companies now have them. Often they've gone from open source backgrounds themselves and then sort of glommed onto a large company. When did you first get involved with open source and how did you end up where you are today wearing this fancy Santa hat? <laughs> well, good question. Thank you. So I've been, I mean, I've been a user of open source for 20 some odd years. Whether or not I knew I was benefiting from open source is a different question. In 2013, I picked up a job at O'Reilly Media as community yep. manager, comma, programming. Up to that point, I had no idea anybody could get paid to do community management. So that was pretty sweet. And while I was at O'Reilly, my job was to be the community manager for, for web technology because I'm a web developer, but also for all things open source, which included their conference, OSCON. And for better or worse, I'm going to say for better, I ended up spending the, a disproportionate amount of time on open source because it's just, it's just so much more interesting to me. I, like, I love the concept of the commons that we're all contributing to. I love the fact that it's really nothing but community. I also really like that everybody who is in open source, I guess open source sort of selects for people who have a bit of a philosophical bent. And so I, I really just find it an interesting space. So after being at O'Reilly for, for a few years, I was at Google's open source program office on their outreach team, running programs like Google Summer of Code and Google Coden. And just this year, I, I went ahead and found myself at Salesforce, um, trying to apply a lot of the lessons that I've learned in the, you know, the previous six years about how to make the most of open source, but how to be reciprocal in terms of the value we're getting. And just how to maintain good relationships with all those communities that we end up relying on. That is so, fascinating. So that's, yeah, that's, it's, it's, it was a bit of an indirect route. I never set out to like get a job in open source, but then I just found it was really cool. And uh, six years later, here I am. It was, I was about to say that never happens, but it did happen. We had someone on the podcast last week who basically learned how to code in an internet cafe in Nigeria with the goal of becoming someone who would then work on open source later building the tools. So it does happen, it. but very rarely will you get a you know, middle schooler who said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an open source directive officer. <laughs> it doesn't happen very often, which is unfortunate. It doesn't yeah. happen yet. Yet. Yes. yes. Keyword. If we keep wearing fancy hats, eventually it will work. Um, <laughs> I, I've really enjoyed following your career because I've known you since maybe 2014 or so. We worked on an awesome conferences list together. Yeah, that's right. And you're still in that field, which is just the coolest. What's interesting, I want to come back to me you said earlier about how you're in the marketing department, sort of. And we're seeing this a lot, again, with large companies where they have an open source officer and they're kind of attached to marketing because it's one of the easiest ways to sell big level execs or the C-suite on, hey, you should spend money on open source. I know we're getting it for free, but you should yep. spend money on top of that. When you have to talk to people who are higher than you, who don't understand what you do, which I'm sure must happen, or if sure. not just higher than you, your parents or something, how, how do you talk about that, that price incentive? Like, why, why should we give money? What's your pitch? Because it must be well honed at this point. Sure. So th there are really two, two approaches that I take in terms of selling the value of open source, of, of, of paying money and investing into open source. The, the first is that, the moment we incorporate an open source library or framework or, or what have you into our own products and services, suddenly like 
we have an existential relationship on that with, with, with that project, right? Like we we depend on it, and so it would be, I would say, negligent for a company to depend on something that they weren't also investing in. You know, so if we depend on these projects being well maintained and addressing security issues as they pop up and releasing things frequently and, you know, it's, it, just in general being a healthy project, if, if we're not investing in that, then then who will? If none of us do, then we end up with that, you know, tragedy of the commons and we end up with a heart bleed and everybody's in pain. So, so there's the, the one angle, which is like, look, just investing in this stuff is good business just to it's just risk mitigation the the other side of it which i think is equally important but maybe not as easy to convey i find is that when we use an open source project we are depending on that project with a certain set of features at a at a point in time and it may be that we would benefit from having a certain new feature added, or maybe there are some bugs, some known issues in the project that are high priority for us, but they're not a high priority for someone else mm -hmm. uh, or for the project maintainers. And, and really what, I, what I'm getting at here is if we are not known entities to the project maintainers, if they don't know who we are, if we've never sponsored them or uh, given them code contributions or help with their documentation, you know, whatever the case may be. If we've never shown up in their community as an equal, as a co-contributor, then why would they pay any attention to what we have to say when we have a bug that's really important to us or a feature request that's really important to us? So being a being someone who's already a member of their community and 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 a supportive one at that suddenly they're going to take us a little more seriously when we raise concerns or requests. And so it's really about, you know, on the one hand, the risk mitigation, and on the other hand, building up a well of goodwill and social capital so that we have some degree of influence in the project. I like that a lot. You're talking about not just risk mitigation, but you keep using the word should invest or negligent, which sort of implies that there's a standard there. And I know that you've called yourself at least I just I just read it on a little bio you wrote, a dusty foot philosopher. Because it sounds like you're talking about it's ethical to give back, right? And it's yes. non-ethical for enterprise companies not to give back. Yes, absolutely. I think <laughs> like, like, you know, I, I'm, I, I try to make the argument from a, from a business perspective most of the time because that's the audience that I'm usually speaking to and those are the arguments that they need to hear. But I do see this through the lens of ethics and like, Look, we are so lucky that we have this concept of open source. We're so fortunate that there are people who came before us who realized that there was another approach to intellectual property. Like, you know, 20 years ago, open source was radical. Yep. <laughs> it was, and, you know, and, and now it's mainstream, but it's still, it is still inextricable from that that sort of that political perspective on intellectual property, that, 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 that philosophical stance that rather than building everything proprietary and in private, but that we should build some things, if not most things or all things in the open 
and then share those with each other because then we all benefit and we all grow faster. And, you know, open source, the software commons is not the only commons out there, but yep. it's, it's the one we find ourselves in. And I definitely see, you know, an, an ethical and moral dimension to feeling an obligation to, to give back. And, and, and that's, that's why, you know, I use words like invest rather than words like sponsor or, do, or well, I do use the word sponsor, but I say invest rather <laughs> than donate because contributing to open source, you know, maybe for the original contributor or, or maintainer, it was an act of generosity to open source it. But for us contributing back, I don't see that as an act of generosity. I see that as us fulfilling our duty. Because if, if again, just like, you know, with, with, with investing, you know, if, if we don't do it, if we're not contributing back, then, then who will? And if no one does, then, well, what are we here for? Uh, one of the things that you said earlier, which caught my attention a little bit there, is you mentioned that when you are investing in these projects, I don't want to say it wrong, but you, you talked about how that investment will also lead to the guidance or direction of the project itself. Can you clarify that? Sure. Yeah, so, so you know, when, when a project is, like, written from the ground up in-house, you know, we have, we have full control over its technical direction, right? Like, we, we set the agenda in terms of, like, okay, well, these are the P0 bugs or these are the features that we absolutely need before our next release. So in-house, when we're using software that's built in-house, we have that control. When we're using third-party software, whether it's open source or not, we don't have that kind of control. And, you know, in, in, in exchange for giving up some control, we're getting, you know, software that we don't pay a license fee for. We're also getting, in many cases, especially if you look at like operating system layer, we're, we're getting more development hours than we could ever think of, of paying for as a company ourselves. So there's, there's, that, that, there's a bargain there that you're making in terms of giving up some control in exchange for these other things. But there is still a way to have some influence. You know, if, if we're one of the major users of, of a certain open source project and it's important to us that a certain feature or something is part of its roadmap, if we are a member of that community already and we've been contributing back, we have a lot more, a lot more sway when we say, hey, we think this would be a, a, useful, a useful direction for the project. It's the difference between, you know, showing up as as like a total unknown and saying, I have an opinion and just having people, you know, respond with blank stares saying like, who are you? Why are you here? And then the difference between that and speaking up and saying, I, I have some thoughts about the direction this should go. And them understanding that we have skin in the game uh, and that we have been helping them out. Um, and so they'll, they'll, they'll take our, our thoughts on these things much more seriously than they otherwise would. So while we are giving up control, we don't have to give up influence. And so that's, that's, that's what I meant in sort of that, that second way that I argue for the benefits of open source is really we have some influence in the project and, and, and hopefully, hopefully that goodwill, you know, goes way beyond just influence to actually just having regular positive interactions with each other so that there's not like some unspoken friction because you're getting a pull request from someone you've never heard of. Hey, this so is imagine. Gunner. Can I ask a follow-on question? Please. 
Yeah, so I guess it's actually two follow-on questions. I guess, you know, in, in sort of uh, investing in the direction of sort of this influence, do you all have principles or guidelines around sort of how to do that with restraint or, you know, with, with boundaries? And I guess the, the second half of the question is, given that you are situated in the marketing part of an organization, yeah. how do you explain to people who expect normally that sponsorship-like investments definitely lead to something? You know, how do you explain to them the non-guaranteed nature of ROI? So I'm just kind of curious, how do you manage those two tensions? Right, right. Okay. Excellent question. Thank you. Thank you. Because I think there's a, there's a journey that every organization goes through with open source. And, you know, that journey may start at like, hey, we found this software that we don't have to pay for, so we're using it. Great. To, oh, this is something that is like a fundamental part of our business. Maybe we should take it more seriously. And, 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 and along that journey, you may find that a company hires somebody like me and I'm the first headcount at Salesforce that is 100% dedicated to open source. Now that's not to say Salesforce hadn't been new to open source for a long time. It's released two projects that are top level Apache projects. But the point that I'm trying to get to is that my role at Salesforce is to formalize our engagement with open source. Uh, so formalize our policies, our processes, improve our tools, our documentation, do the outreach to make sure people know they could use open source and how they should do it, et cetera. And so because I'm coming in as somebody who is formalizing things and laying a foundation, we're not at the beginning of the journey by any means, but we're, we're still pretty early on in that journey. So to, to, to your first question, Gunnar, the the way that we make sure that we're using the influence and goodwill that we build up in these open source communities is, you know, in, in, the, in the style of do no harm, is really to have people on staff, not, not just me, but also major contributors to those projects who can help moderate our engagements the way we interface with projects. So we have major committers to Apache projects who work in the company, and then we have me who is like a community specialist. And so because we have these people on staff who have so much skin in the game in terms of open source communities and have the experience of how to engage in good faith and not like over leverage things or, or you know, come out aggressively or anything, because we have people like us, we're able to, to be very considered in how we decide to, to wield influence. You know, it's, Influence is a soft thing, not a, not a hard thing. And so it may be at, that at some point, as the, the first dedicated headcount to formalize open source things for uh, Salesforce, it may be that one of the things that I end up doing is helping to create policies to codify that for, for the folks who come after me. But right now, that is done just by merit of having thoughtful people on staff. Now, to your second question about that tension, because there is definitely a tension between marketing, which has its own goals, and you know, a, a nascent open source programs office, which has its own. And I think that probably parallels the discussion that is pretty prevalent in the developer relations community, which is like, what org do you report to? And if you're in marketing, you know, often for DevRel, that's, uh, that may not be a good signal. You know, often, you know, I think reasonable people can disagree, but often you want to report up to product or you want to report up to the engineering org. 
and ultimately for an open source programs office, I, I think this, the goal should be the same. I think ultimately we want to be reporting up to people who are engineering leaders specifically, because they're the ones that we're supporting most directly. But in the meantime, while we've managed to plant the seed in a, for, for an open source programs office in, in a marketing team, a lot of the pitches sort of have two layers to them. So when I am advocating for sponsoring a, a certain community or a conference or a project, you know, I have, I have the open source pitch and then I have my marketing pitch. And ultimately, hopefully, you know, when we are our own thing, I can pull off that marketing layer and just say like, you no, know, here's the pitch for open source. But in the meantime, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't a bit of a constraint and it, and it made things a little bit more difficult because there's that inherent tension because our goals are just different. But for the time being, just means I do a little extra work when I'm figuring out how to persuade people to do things. I had a question because it's got to be such a challenge running an OSPO or open source program office in an organization with 8,000 developers. <laughs> what are the challenges and how do you deal with that? Because I know before you were at Google, but now you're running the show here at Salesforce. Yeah. Yeah. It was a bit of a leap. You know, Google's open source programs office has been around for 15 years. They're, you know, they're a well-oiled machine. Not that they don't have more work to do. Everyone does. You know, joining as like the 15th or 25th or 50th employee of an established OSPO is definitely very different from joining as somebody who's now tasked with, with creating one. And it, it is a challenge. I will say that, you know, the, the way that works for me right now is like, I'm the, I'm the dedicated headcount, but there's already like a community of people within Salesforce who are focused on open source. And we call them OSS core at Salesforce. And they're basically people who are major contributors, or maybe they're just like huge fans of open source. They really believe in it. And what they do is they have carved out, they carve out time in their work week to uh, review outbound open source requests to, to make sure we're doing our due diligence on everything. And so Salesforce has largely up to this point or maybe, maybe up to the last couple of years, really done open source by merit of having this ad hoc group of volunteers in partnership with legal, in partnership with security. And so for me coming in, I'm really fortunate to have that existing, um, that existing group of people working on these things. And it means that there are some policies in place. There are, you know, there are some things. I'm not starting from zero. But what I am doing is I am like collecting all the docs from this corner of Confluence and that corner of Quip and you know that nook of Google Docs over there. It's like trying to pull everything together and make a coherent, say, set of documents and uh, set of policies. But it also means that I'm taking our processes and our tools, which have sort of evolved to where they are and trying to think about them and how we would approach them if we had more resources to put into them and we're you know like let's let's start from scratch what is what does it look like to make it really easy for someone who's doing their job to incorporate an open source library into the work that they're doing you know what does it look like to 
make it really easy for people to take that bug fix they've just uh, prepared and upstream that to to the project that we uh, were using. So I guess the challenges really are in 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 the outreach, you know, because my my partners of security and legal, like and 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 in the OSS core, they're they're lovely and they're really easy to work with. It's it's fantastic. There's nobody that's been difficult to work with, but just the scale. You know, having 8,000 people in the tech org that need to know about these policies and need to know that they can take advantage of open source, like that's, that's where the challenge comes in because we need to fire on all cylinders to use all of the channels to get the word out and encourage people to you know, not only be aware that the policies are there, but to encourage them to participate and, and contribute to open source as part of their day-to-day work. So the challenge is the outreach and that scale, I think. That's a great answer. Now... Keeping it easy, what tools are you using in the OSPO, like FASA, Sneak? What's making your life easier so aspiring OSPO leaders can basically learn from the master? Yeah, so I have been so grateful to... I, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to downgrade myself from master to journeyman. I apologize. That's probably the wrong terminology, but yeah. No, no, no. I, I love it and I'm flattered too, but... Uh, <laughs> But like they're so humble. (laughs) I try. I try. Again, I'm really fortunate in that. Like, I'm not necessarily tilling. This is not greenfield work. You know, maybe at Salesforce, but because, like, to your point earlier, there lots of companies are spinning up OSPOs. You know, if they don't have one yet, they're 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 starting one. And so, I have really benefited from tools like CLA Assistant. You know, a little little bot we can attach to our GitHub repos to make sure people have signed CLAs. Uh, another tool that I'm really, really grateful for is the OSS Review Toolkit, which is a, a fabulous tool that will scan a repository, you know, open your package, your, your package.json file or your manifest files. It will suss out all of your dependencies and all the version requirements and what the licenses are, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's been incredibly useful in terms of making sure that the open source tools and libraries that we're consuming are don't have any surprises in them, you know, because of course the 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 deal we make with open source or with any use of intellectual property, whether it's open source or not, frankly, is there the rights that come with it? Like, hey, we get to use this thing, as well as the responsibilities, which is hey, you need to have an attribution notice or you need to make this this corresponding source code available. So through use of the open source uh, OSS review toolkit, I'm able to say like, okay, this package and all of its dependencies are under these licenses. That means our compliance obligation is this. So then we do that. Those are the two projects that I've been really grateful for off the top of my head. And and I'll I'll just give a shout out to the to-do group here to-do group is uh, Talk Openly, Develop Openly, I believe. And it's a project for the Linux Foundation. And ultimately, the to-do group is like a consortium of people like us, who people who are really invested in open source, who work at uh, large companies, who have large investments in open source. You know, we're comparing notes and we're helping each other navigate this new world for each other. And we're building and sharing tools as well. So like the OSS Review Toolkit and CLA Assistant, those are both tools that I found through the to-do group that were developed by other open source programs offices. And so I'm really, I'm just really happy that like, I'm not a pioneer here. So like, I don't need to go out on a limb with this stuff. 
there, there are people who've done a really good job really uh, exploring this terrain before I even showed up. I'd love to dig into the OSI a little bit. I yeah. know that Justin is also a member of the OSI. I think you're, you're, yep. yeah, you're part of the organization. I, I'd like to hear what your day-to-day is there. Tell us a little bit about the OSI, the role of OSI, and maybe yeah. some of the challenges that you've come to recently with kind of these new licenses popping up that are not really open source according to the OSI, but there are some differing thoughts. I'd love to hear your opinion on all of that. Ooh, okay. All right, cool. So yeah, I'm the vice president of the Open Source Initiative, which really just means like I'm a board member who got elected to the board and the board elected me our vice president. So I think there's been a lot of discussion about open source recently, and it's been really, really fascinating because it's coming from a few different places. And what has happened is that as projects like project companies like MongoDB have decided to relicense their, their, their projects, you know, there's been a great amount of energy put into the discussion of like whether that's the, the new license they're using is open source or not. And, you know, we can get to talking about that, but basically like, yes, this has been an active discussion. And because of that, OSI has suddenly appeared uh, on the scene for many people who didn't know that OSI ever existed. Basically like 21 years ago, you know, Free software was already a thing, you know, free software as in like freedom, not as in beer. And, you know, we had companies saying like, oh, you know, this stuff is is a cancer or this is like bad for business. And there was a lot of FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt coming from from some corners of the market about this new approach to, to intellectual property. And so there's a group of people that got together and ultimately Christine Peterson, one of those people, proposed the phrase open source as a new way to frame this approach to intellectual property that would be less scary for the suits, basically. And so that's that's the year open source was coined, 1998. And that same year, there were some folks who got together to form the Open Source Initiative, which is a, a charitable nonprofit, 501c3 for people who know what that means. And the Open Source Initiative, OSI, the role of that organization is to broadly protect and promote open source. But what does that, what does that really mean? Uh, like the, the most important thing that OSI does is maintain the OSI approved license list and the process by which new licenses are added to that list. So when I use a project and I say it's an open source project, what does that mean? You know, I think we've arrived at a time when open source has been overloaded with meanings. And I think there are three meanings and I wanna unpack them a little bit and then bring us back to OSI. So an open source is ultimately, ultimately just about intellectual property and the license that we put on something. So. You have projects that have an open source license, therefore it's an open source project. However, one of the other meanings that I think a lot of people sort of implicitly believe is there, you know, I think this as a community, we think of open source this way and so do I. And so it's, there's, there's agreement that open source also refers to a methodology. 
a way of collaborating with each, with each other. So there's like the open source workflow, right? And if you talk about like what, and if you you can trace that, the open source development methodology, there's a straight line from that to what is now being called inner source, which is really like taking the open source methodology and, and using that internally for proprietary things or maybe open source things. So, right, so, so far we've got the two meanings of open source. Open source as in the license, then we have open source as in the methodology. And then there's also a sense of open source in terms of governance. Like, is this project owned by a single company or uh, do they accept contributions from people outside of the project? How are technical decisions made around that project? And so oftentimes people will say, oh, I know what open source is. It's a project that lives on GitHub and, you know, I can file issues and make feature requests and, you know, it's owned sort of collaboratively. And that's not wrong. It's true that that is what open source is, but that's just one facet of it. And so that brings me back to OSI. OSI is about uh, the, the most important activity OSI does is to maintain the o OSI approved license list. And what OSI does is people will come to the, the license discuss or license review mailing list, and they'll submit a new license for consideration. And before a license is submitted to OSI, and before OSI has voted up or down on that license, people should not call that an open source license. So what happens is people will submit a license to the mailing list, we will review it. There's, a, uh, there's, there's an open source definition, which has 10 components to it. So every new license needs to be compliant with all 10 of those, those clauses. And so people on the license review list, which includes just you know, intellectual property attorneys, naturally, as well as just interested community members, will kick around the idea, try to poke holes in it, look at it from all sides, and ultimately, if there's agreement that, yes, this license is conformant with the open source definition, then the OSI board will take it to a vote. And, and if it's compliant with the definition, then we'll approve it. And suddenly, we've got a new license on the OSI approved license list. We've got a new license that we can describe as open source. Any license that has not gone through that process and is not on that list, I would caution people against calling it open source. Because OSI ultimately, by having an OSI approved license list, has done some legal janitorial work that we all rely on. So whether you're the US government and you're creating the US federal open source policy, or you're the European Union and you're trying to roll out some policies for the creation of software for the public, or whether you're a company and you want to use open source software, every single one of those organizations relies on OSI and its process and the OSI approved license list. And therefore, me as government X or company Y, I don't have to do the legwork of taking every single license I look at and vetting it and exploring it because OSI has already done that. And so because OSI has this, has sort of allowed people to externalize that, that cost of open source, we've seen the adoption of open source be much more rapid because it's easier to understand how to comply. We've, we've sort of tamed the chaos a bit 
Um, now I say we, but OSI, you know, and when I say we, I don't just mean OSI because OSI as a nonprofit is just a vehicle. It is literally just a vehicle by which the community comes together and builds consensus around these things. You know, I was not appointed to the OSI board or as vice president out of nowhere. You know, I became an individual member of the OSI. I ran for the board and I was elected. And that's how most of our board members are, are found is, is through an election process. And same with the license review list. Like that's not just the OSI making these decisions. That's the OSI hosting a mailing list and maybe facilitating a conversation, but that's the whole community convening to discuss and vet these things. So basically, Open Source Initiative is a nonprofit foundation that is the vehicle by which our whole industry, you know, for-profit, nonprofit, governmental, individual contributors, you know, the whole spectrum of different parties with their different motivations and, 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 and interests and philosophical views, OSI is just the vehicle by which we all come to, together around common ground and then figure out what open source is. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for that awesome, just understanding what OSI is and the background. Yeah. And it was very thorough and it's, it's really cool, actually. I don't think we've had someone go into such depth here. Um, yes. So thank you for that. I, I feel this great inner turmoil right now because I disagree yeah. with you fundamentally on Ooh. OSI being a vehicle for the community. I think oh. OSI is a vehicle for the enterprise community and for people who have the privilege to be on OSI's mailing list and get involved and get elected. Ah. And it's not a vehicle for people who like our contributors, but like, for instance, dual licensing. Because yeah. dual licensing is not open source, according to OSI's definitions. Yeah. And dual licensing, I think, is a very important part of the community of open source because it helps people who are independent individual contributors get money for their projects out of enterprise. Sure. And so that's kind of like a really interesting thing where I'm actually a huge fan of licenses like uh, License Zero, which is an enterprise pay license, individuals don't pay license. And the OSI has not approved that as open source. And so right. you may have noticed me like grimacing the entire time you were talking yeah. because like I, I love the OSI's work because it has made it so much easier for small companies, for enterprise yeah. companies that fund individual contributors, for governments who don't have the time to deal with this crap because yeah. they have a huge ton of bureaucracy to, to, to go through. It has made it easier, and that's great. And it has yeah. tamed the chaos. But I just want to point out that taming the chaos may come at the expense of things which aren't able to get on the OSI's view because of the way the OSI is set up. Do you see where I'm coming from? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, I, I'm really glad that you're pushing back here because you know one of the, one of the things that I, I mentioned is as we've seen some prominent projects and, and companies start relicensing things, Suddenly, you know, the OSI is weighing in on these things. And I think a lot of people are like, wait, wait, OSI, who are you to say what open source is? Right. And I, I totally get it. Like I was a, a developer for well over 10 years using open source before mm. I ever knew that OSI existed. And mm. so because open source is just the water that we swim in, I think we, we sort of take for granted that there's some structure there that caused that to be. Now, I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but I'm saying that like broadly, there's been a, there's been a, a like, wait, who, who's this? Who, who, who are you? And why are you yeah. making these? Who, who are you to have this authority? And so, you know, what, what I would say is like OSI convenes like well over a hundred major open source projects and through the foundations that are our affiliates, 
hundreds more open source projects, everything from Drupal to Git to, you know, to Homebrew, you know, those are all either direct affiliates of OSI or indirectly through their membership in a certain foundation. Um, and then OSI has, so it has like those organizational members. OSI also has individual members and yeah. the individual Justin's members. So. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and, and so am I, and that's why I'm on. And, and, and I used my role as an individual member to, to then run for the board. And so. But you're not an individual member because you are an individual person on the individual payment scheme but you're also right. employed by Salesforce and you were employed by Google and O'Reilly and you've been doing sure. that for a while. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing at yeah, all. Yeah, we need people like you in these large organizations giving back, donating, investing, making yeah. sure that open source has a Influencing. voice. Influencing. Influencing all of it. Like it's super important and I love yeah. what you're doing and I'm so glad for it. Yeah. But don't you see how that's inherently giving you a perspective on what open source is that may differ from individual people just hacking away? Absolutely. Like, okay. I, 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 yeah, yeah. I, I will totally own that. I, I embody a very specific perspective on open source, and like, I've got a, I've got a horse in this race, right? Like, this is how I yep. make a living. So obviously, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Like, I come to the table with very specific perspectives. Now, as an individual member who is on the OSI board, I only represent myself. Um, cool. Now. Though I may be affiliated with North Bay Python and, you know, Salesforce, my job is to represent only myself and the community members that I, I want to represent. So, for instance, when I ran, I ran on a platform of, of inclusive community building. Uh, awesome. Because, right, like, we, we all see, like, that's a problem. I have strong opinions about it. I have some experience in, in building inclusive communities. And so, like, I wanted to run for the board because that's what I brought to the table. Um, not because I have any particular views on licensing other than the general fact that I think that the commons is a good thing for the world. So I guess like, like, yeah, I, I, I embody a certain view and I, you know, as much as I may try to think things through and be objective, like inevitably I, I'm, I'm biased by who pays me, right? Like that's, that's, that's true for all of us. So so yeah, yeah. I, but I it's also you. important I, to have that voice. And it's super awesome that you have that right. voice at all. And it gives you the ability to do this, which I think is great. Right. And just for the record, I'm not trying to nail you to the wall here. I'm just pointing oh, out no. that the OSI is interesting. So no, 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 it's, totally. it's good that there's there's a debate here because or else no. it'll just be boring. So no, I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, so do I. I. I would be more concerned if people weren't interested. Yeah. You know, I, I, I take vigorous debate as like a really positive sign and disagreement as a positive sign because it means you care enough to disagree in the first place, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah, and there's not an echo chamber of just ideas that are the same. Yeah. So, so I, I, I have think, a question which I, I wanted to ask earlier. This is, yeah. I think this is great and this is OSI, but I want to get back to Salesforce for a tiny bit because I'm curious, if, if you don't mind, unless you had something you really want to wrap up there. I, I did just want to say, th though I work in an OSPO, you know, when I was elected to the OSI board, I had just a, a few days previously been laid off as a community manager at O'Reilly. So I didn't yeah. represent anybody. I, I cool. literally, like, no one was paying me for open source at that point. Like, I didn't, I, I didn't think much about open source compliance. I was just somebody who wanted to get involved with the community. And so yeah. I, I, I agree that the 
because folks like me who, who now work in an OSPO and that's my bread and butter, like because we have a stake in it, we are we make up the majority of the people who show up to conversations in license review, right? And that is absolutely accurate. I want to push back though a little bit on the mm. notion that individual contributors who are just just hacking on things in their day to day somehow can't be involved because the mailing list they can all- be involved. No, they totally can be involved. And if right. if that's how I came off, that's not that's not right. I just feel like okay, there's yeah. yeah, there's a difference between there's surely a difference of scale where the amount of individual contributors isn't the same as the amount of businesses. And the other issue is that most individuals don't work at this level, right? right. Uh, CLA bot is great if you're a company that actually has to have legal enforcement. Doing right. security audits are great if you're a company that actually has stuff where like it's important that yeah. the users don't lose their data. But the majority of Heroku's developers using their platforms are probably going to be people on hackathons who just threw up an instance and like yeah. don't really care. And that's also right. open source. And those people may not have the time to understand, okay, well, the word and in the GNU uh, GPL <laughs> license is slightly right. different, right? right? I mean, and I see this all the time. Like I look at some of Kyle Mitchell's posts on his, on his blog. He's a guy who made License Zero. And I just sort of glaze over because it's legalese to me and it's not relevant right. to my day life of like, right. well... Was this person kind enough on this GitHub issue or not? You know, like that's kind of different. And so I think there's a disparity of interest and that disparity leads to bias. And that bias can lead towards the OSI being seen as the thing. Whereas for me, because it didn't exist for 10 years in my mind until I found out about it, for me, OSI will never have a place at the table defining what Mm. open source is. What it has is a place at the table defining what open source can be when you're a large company that needs to have a, a strict definition. Sure, sure. Which I see is different. Does that make sense? Yeah, the, the, that, that totally makes sense to me. And, I, you know, I, I think open source through the OSI is, you know, I, I want to say, like, you know, you, I wasn't there when open source definition was created. I wasn't there when OSI was founded. I, no one consulted me. But, but just because <laughs> I personally wasn't consulted, like, doesn't make it any less valid. Right. Totally. And, yeah. and so like now, like, okay, well, we've got this organization, we've got this definition that predates my involvement and I have opinions about these things. And so now that's an opportunity for me to get involved and to put my thumb on the scale as someone with, with different perspectives. And I want to say like some of the people who've been recently elected to our board are very much like people who come from sort of these, these outside views uh, like awesome. as a web developer, for instance, like as a web developer, I think like web developers are the single largest group of open source developers on the planet, yep. you know, and web development is no doubt the single biggest entry point to software development more generally at this point. But it's not the only one. It's, it's not the only ones. one, but yeah. I, I guess the point that I'm trying to get at is like, we get into this because we can and we like the work and the open source definition you know, like on a day-to-day basis, I don't want to think about licensing. Like what a waste <laughs> of my time, right? Like I, w- I just want to get things done. And so, and, and, that, and that is like OSI, when it's doing a really good job, is like a site reliability engineer. You don't even think about us, you know? But the moment there's chaos, the moment there's chaos, you're like, oh, someone messed up here, right? And so I think, I think what we're seeing now is like 
OSI as an organization has definitely come up short on communicating with people and uh, making sure that it is at least two sentences in the bootcamp curriculum or two lectures in the CS 101 course or, you know, what have you. So like the, the fact that we're at this point where we've all benefited from, from open source and OSI's work, but, but suddenly we're in a position of like, where, where there are large groups of people who are like, who are they to say this? Like, I think that's a symptom of a failure of outreach and communication and education. Uh, and I want to own that. But I want to say, like, people with differing views, like, you know, OSI isn't some other. Like, OSI is us, and it could be you. So, like, I encourage people, especially people who have views countered to my own, to, to get involved. You can pay for an individual membership. It's 40 a year. Or you can ask for a free one if that's not, not something you can afford. And students all get free ones. You can do that, and then you can run for the board and and make sure that these other views are represented. That would be a service to not just OSI, but the greater community and all of us going forward. Because the viewpoint you're representing, though we though we have some fundamental disagreements here, is valid and important. Yep. And and I want that at the table. And we happen to have this vehicle here. And we may perceive it as being the vehicle of the other, of like the corporate OSPO or whatever, but it's really the vehicle for all of us. And it's really just a matter of like, will you take back your power? And I feel like I it's very directed at me. Will. I just want to point out to all of you listening right now, this is for all of you as well. Get yes. involved with the OSI uh, if you want. And if you also see Salesforce around, it's probably Josh who did that. <laughs> I think this is probably a good time for us to wrap up. Josh, where can people find you and your views and your awesome presence on the internet? Yes, I am at joshsimmons.com. I uh, am on Twitter, GitHub, and LinkedIn as Josh Simmons. Uh, and I am blue somewhere on IRC Freenode. Thank you so much for being here. This is great. Thank now we're going to go to the last part of the episode where we have Spotlight, where we talk about really cool open source projects that we happen to love. Yeah. So... Traditionally, the guest goes last. So, Justin, what have you got for us? I have to give a shout out to Curl. I had some mixed content issues with WordPress this week, and Curl helped me debug them. So, thank you, Ooh. Daniel, and the contributors of the Curl project. Thank you. Curl is the best. Eric? I've been working on implementing an API on top of our current application recently. During the Christmas break, I'd like to be able to start working on some interfaces where not only I, but others can start developing on top of our application. And so I found this highly opinionated REST framework that bolts onto Ruby called Grape. It's uh, ruby-grape.org. Originally created by Daniel Dubrovkin. And I think it's absolutely fantastic. It's an incredible abstraction for simplistic API management in Ruby. So thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for all of the 300 plus contributors on that project. And they are open for sponsorship. Feel free to go there and sponsor them. Or influence or invest or whatever you would like. <laughs> Aspiration Tech, Gunner, do you have anything you want to give a shout out to this week? 
I do. I, I'm feeling a lot of love for the F-Droid project. That's f-droid.org. I got to hang out with them at an event a couple of weeks ago, and I'm just really inspired by the way they're trying to federate and democratize distribution of apps and make it so different folks can curate different collections and sort of not get bottlenecked through some of the mainstream stores. So I just love what they're doing, and I think they're really doing it in a very community-centric way. Awesome. Thank you. Pia is not here, so I will give an extra shout out to Open Collective for Pia because she will never do it for herself. Open Collective is great. If you want to sponsor stuff, go check it out. And then for myself, I wanted to give a shout out to Ferros's project, Spoof Mac. I may have done this before. I use it all the time in airports when they have the 45-minute limit or in cafes. You can reset your Mac address from the CLI. Super, super easy. Spoof-Mac on GitHub. Also happens when you have slow internet and you basically need to convince the router that you're a new computer so it prioritizes you. Very useful tool. Um, he creates the best other, stuff. Like I, I don't know how he does it. He's the coolest person ever. I love him. I, um, gotta, I can't wait to meet him. <laughs> yeah, IRL. He's great. Josh, what yes. are you going to give a shout out to this week? I would love to give a shout out to Drupal. I got my start in web development. I spent 13 years as a freelancer and uh, attempted startup CEO selling a Drupal. Like I, I built my career on Drupal. That, that was my bread and butter. And I'm so grateful to Dries and WebChick and the Drupal Association and all the, no doubt at this point, tens of thousands of contributors who make that project tick. You know, I, I am here because of you. So thank you. I love it. Drupal's a great project. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. It was a pleasure talking to you. Apparently there will be another episode at some yes. point. Listeners, keep your ears out for that. And otherwise, adios. See ya. Later, y'all. Later. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain.